Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm your embodied guide, Laura Redmond, and today I'm really excited. My guest is Marley Grace. Marley's an improviser and a writer living in rural California. She works with improvisation as a method for navigating being alive and making work through movement, quilting, writing, and podcasting. And her new book, which is entitled A Sacred Shift, a book about personal practice, just came out. I loved it. And personal practice, if you're on Instagram, you may have seen it. It's an amazing feed that features Marley dancing in different environments. And there's a lot that I've learned about why she started this, digging around to learn more about her. So we're going to talk about that. But really cool was that the New York Times did an article on Marley in August. And I wanted to share with the listeners the opening of this article to teach you a little more about personal practice if you haven't already signed up on Instagram. Excuse me. And the article says... A beach, an airport, a rest stop, a graveyard, an outlet mall bathroom. These are a few of the places where the dancer Marley Grace has filmed herself improvising during the past two years. Ms. Grace is the artist behind the Instagram account Personal Practice, a trove of short videos documenting her daily movement practice, and the author of a new self-published book about the project, A Sacred Shift. A scroll through the hundreds of posts reveal videos of her jamming out next to a post office, weathering the snow and rain, and perhaps most often dancing in her living room. While Instagram has become a go-to forum for dancers recording themselves in class and rehearsal, Ms. Grace has managed to stand out, though it's hard to pinpoint why. Maybe it's her musical selections, which range from Justin Bieber to Wind and Waves, her playful, impulsive choices as a mover and iPhone videographer, or the sense that she's not working toward anything in particular, just dancing for herself and anyone who happens to cross her virtual path. Welcome to the show, Marley. Thank you. I studied improvisational um, acting with a wonderful guide here in Portland, Oregon, and I did about two years of classes with her. So I'm really fascinated by the idea of improvisation as a way to live. Um, And I was really blown away, actually, by what I learned in these workshops. It taught me a very different way to come into the world from both a listening perspective and a responsive, momentary, being mindfully present perspective. So how do you define improvisation in your own words? Wow. 
great, great opening question. How do I, you know, it's funny. I, I, you know, my, my main like lens or entry point to improvising is through dancing. And that's, that's what I went to school for. That's what I maybe feel the most comfortable teaching or working in. But I, I have all these other modalities that I work in, like quilting and writing, other things you mentioned. And when I was sort of trying to, like in the past few months, sort of tie them all together. And when people would be like, what do you do? And I was still sort of like fumbling to be like, well, I'm a dancer and I guess I make books sometimes, you know, I just, I'm so like all over the board that I was like, oh yeah, the common thread is that I'm, imp- I'm improvising, whether I'm writing or quilting or, or teaching or walking. Um, and so I think to me, improvisation is sort of a, you know, in dance, it really is its own technique or I'm sure in acting, maybe you found that. Uh, but I think it's about, I love that you said the word listening. It's like, to me, improvisation is the, the method that I use to make compositional choices. So whether that's um, how I write a letter to someone or craft an email or make a collage or, you know, any, it's, it's really my way of making choices is improvising. And so sometimes like a question I often ask is like, what is the most generous next choice? And sometimes the most generous choice is to like dive in all the way or it's to be silent and or be still. And so I sort of have this framework that's like there's a million different choices that I can make every day just being alive or, you know, making making work in my art practice. And so it's sort of, yeah, for me, it's a study of choice making. Oh, I love that. I love choice making along with the listening. And what led me to listening was something, um, listening as a word choice and discussing it was I saw something that you had written on your website about not being attached to outcome. Mm-hmm. And that is such a freeing concept to not be attached to outcome. And I think it's a very um, unusual approach because when I really sat with that idea, I realized how often one is driven by outcome, even if it's by not listening to what someone is saying and then responding without even knowing what was said. That sort of is its own outcome. So how does that, one of the things that I just, have to say, you probably hear this a lot, but you're such an old soul. You're, mm. you're such an old soul. Like when I saw your age, I thought, no, there's, I mean, you look, you look young, but yeah. your, your soul is so ancient and beautiful. Mm. Mm. And so when I see the work you've put out in the world so far, and I love personal practice on Instagram, do you ever think of your outcome or are you truly coming from a present place where outcome is not relative? I feel really lucky or mm, I, I, mm, I don't love the word lucky. I feel like I've really worked for worked towards um, really being unattached to the outcome. And I think, uh, I think, you know, doing personal practice as a project taught me that. And I think I, yeah, I remember someone asking me once, they were like, well, what are you practicing for? 
And I was like, hmm, uh, I guess I hadn't thought about that. You know, it really was just sort of birthed out of like, I'm not dancing as much as I want to. I want to be dancing more. Uh, maybe I could build this accountability practice for myself and just dance more. And then, um, you know, um, amazing things happen from that. And I think, you know, I, I'll, I'm not going to lie that like the difference between when it when I first started the feed and like 50 people followed it, um, maybe I had a different relationship to it now when, you know, so there's, there's videos, you know, with over 50,000 views on them. That's a really different experience than one with 12 views. Yeah. On them. And, and so I think, you know, I, I love that, um, in Siobhan's New York times article, she, I like identified me as an iPhone videographer, which is something I don't, re I've never really thought of myself as, but absolutely. When you look through those videos, I mean, part of my composing and improvising is absolutely in like what, how am I framing the piece? You know, how, like which direction am I putting the camera and like what, what 15 seconds to a minute am I editing? So I think, um, you know, there's some attachment to, to there's not really, a t oh, I think I'm pretty unattached to the experience of the viewer. Like I maybe have an outcome in mind for like, okay, I'm gonna, I want this video to look a certain way and to feel and convey something. Um, but I'm, I've been able to stay pretty unattached to what other people's experience is as a viewer. And I think that's been powerful for the viewer. It seems they get to have their oh, own yeah. experience. Well, and it's so powerful for you to be able to know not to get deeply into any of that because that would probably stop the flow right. that is so freeing in watching you and, mm -hmm. and seeing the way you compose these these small but very meaningful pieces that are, I would say the thing I felt when I first saw you was that I was so happy not to see the ego being the reason for the post, like mm. I felt mm -hmm. like I was being let into your private space, which is why I like the title that you chose for the page, because there's a sense of being a voyeur watching you and your most honest soul self moving. And it was as a dancer, I'm a dancer. And I was mm -hmm. so relieved not to see some ego pumping mm -hmm. your leg higher and mm -hmm. then everyone going, wow, look, she's a dancer. It, it was so much more comforting to me, nurturing to me and helpful as just a way to feel met in that form by another cool. in a really, really real way. And that's what I think is comes through in your work and the book of yours. I just loved that. I read that I mentioned that is just recently out called and it's such a pretty book, A Sacred Shift, a book about personal practice. Uh, I love the colors you pick, the fonts Thanks. you pick, the simplicity of your lower case. It's just, mm. it's very comforting to me. So thank you. Because there's very little of that, I find, in my own uh, textural experience on Instagram. I love Instagram, but I'm often in a vortex with it that doesn't feel real or grounded and there's right. a big difference with certainly the work that you've put out there so far. So talk a little bit about your relationship with Instagram. Oh, boy. Um, well, first, I want to say I'm really I, you know, I collaborated on the book with Richard Werenberg, and he is an old friend and amazing. And he 
really turned, you know, he, I, you know, kind of told him what I wanted it to look like, but he really picked that size and that exact color and those fonts. And I feel like he did such an amazing thing because I didn't another out, like I didn't have an, an expectation for the book. You know, that was another beautiful thing. I was like, well, I feel like I should make a book about this and who knows what people's experience will be with the book. But I think because so many people are watching like an embodied mover on Instagram for them to get to hold like a physical object that I made was way more powerful than I anticipated. And so I also want to like, yeah, give Richard a lot of credit for really like, you know, he knows me so well and knows my work. And it was really amazing to watch someone else help me make an object that sort of like translated from this virtual world to the physical world. Um, but my relationship with Instagram is incredibly complicated. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you asked because I'm in a pretty kind of intense moment in my life right now where, um, you know, I'm an addict. I haven't taken a drink in almost seven years and I, um, I, it's easy for me to find other things to fill, to fill that void sometimes if I'm not being careful. And Instagram is an addictive tool. It's, it's built to be addictive. It's not a mystery that it's not like, why are we addicted to this? It's like the people who built it, built it so that we never want to leave it. <laughs> and so it's really hard because it's, um, you know, it's a place I have this art project. It's a place that I promote my work, that I tell people when I'm teaching. You know, I write. A lot of my writing just sort of exists on Instagram. It's really inspiring to people. But I often want to just, like, quit all of it and be like, I don't want to be on this app. I don't want to be, you know, scrolling. And um, so, yeah, I, it's – I. I try to find a, a deep sense of gratitude for it because it really has given me – a lot of my best friends today, it's given me a career in, in writing and art making that I don't think I would have maybe found otherwise. But it's also, uh, I, but my relationship is complicated to it, not because I think like Instagram is the devil. I don't really think that. I think it's a really amazing tool. But as an addict, it's, it's really hard for me and it's embarrassing. It's like, it's funny. It's with drinking. I don't, um, it's really easy for me to talk about drink not drinking because I just don't do it. Like it's not, I don't try to moderate my drinking. So it's like, it's pretty simple on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it can be a struggle, but, but with Instagram, it's like, um, I have to really navigate, like, do I use it a little bit today? Do I use it a lot today? So, um, yeah, that's how I feel about Instagram. I think it's great and can really suck me in and I'm really working on not letting it suck me in. Well, you say something that I think is so helpful and really for a lot of the young people I work with, it's, it's one of these like big time important takeaways, which is to check in with yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, how many hours are you on it? How much are you avoiding by doing it? Where is there yep. a numbness that's coming over you? Like check in, give yourself that yep. time and then get out, <laughs> get out. You know, yep. that's the hard part when you're in that very addictive vortex of Instagram and I'm glad you brought up the drinking it's one of the things I couldn't wait to talk to you about because I quit drinking in August um, wow. yeah it's nice. huge for me and and I cool. just 
I love talking to other people who are on the path, certainly for seven years. Was it hard for you? And you said sometimes you made a comment a minute ago that sounded like you are aware of the challenges still. Can you tell us about what is hard, what is not so hard anymore, or what might have been in the beginning? Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, you mentioned my age. I'm a young person, I think. I'm 29 years old. Um, And so I, you know, I quit drinking young. I was 22 when I quit drinking. And I, I think what's hard about it now is, well, I just noticed that my, when I'm not like taking care of my mental health, I can, again, I I think for me, it's like not drinking is as severe as like you know, to, to drink to me is to die. You know, it's, it's that extreme for me. That's my relationship with alcohol. It's not everyone's who quits or needs a break, but, um, you know, to me, I I definitely identify as an alcoholic and someone who, um, can't drink in moderation. And so I really don't like fear drinking as much as I can see sometimes when I'm not taking care of that part of my brain that my behavior in other places kind of goes awry. So I think that's what's hard sometimes. Um, sometimes being out late, is hard. I just went out dancing the other night, you know, I'm like mm-hmm. dancing till 2am with my friends, which is great. And like, I feel like my friends are sort of, you know, they're drinking, but they're like, still on the same level, but just being at a at a place where there's drinking until 2am, it's like pretty much everybody else there is. Um, like, obliterated and so sometimes I think that's just like not a space I want to be in it doesn't really make me want to drink if anything it's I'm like I'm really glad I'm not that person anymore um yeah and yeah we live in a world where people drink and so I feel really lucky to have a lot of you know comrades in my life who also don't drink and that definitely helps me but did you get off of alcohol with the help of AA or did you just stop? What was your methodology for getting off? Um, I do. So I, I will answer this in a way that I heard Stephen King answer the same question on NPR, which was amazing, which is that there is a tradition in AA that says that we will be anonymous at the level of press, radio and film. And so I will remain anonymous, but say that I do use a 12-step program yeah. to not drink. And I yeah. loved that. I mean, so yeah, my answer, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm saying yes. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, it was a beautiful, I was like, oh, that's so amazing that he like tried to use that tradition. And yeah, that's always been, I mean, I'm happy to also say that like, that's been a hard part of navigating how I talk about it publicly because I really do like to honor that tradition. But I, I also, you know, I write about sobriety. I talk about it on my own podcast a lot and I don't always like keeping it a total mystery how I do it, but I understand the fear of like, you know, if I were to get wasted tomorrow, someone listening would be like, well, I guess 12 step programs don't work. And so I think that's the hesitation that people don't want it to be like brought into the public eye. Um, you know, that tradition was also written by white men 80 years ago. So it's, you know, who are, who are also like in the, in the business world and could, and couldn't be, um, public about it. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of 12, of the 12 steps, but I, you know, they're flawed again, like they're written by men. God is, um, 
has a capital G and this gendered he a lot. And so I've struggled, but I've also like, there's so many different kinds of recovery groups. You know, there's smart recovery, there's refuge recovery, um, there's women's meetings, there's queer meetings. Um, so I like to hope that there's something for every weirdo out there, but yeah, that's a, that's a, I do not do this alone. And, um, and I also have my own you know, spiritual practice outside of that. That's important to me. Well, Noah Levine was on my show, Levine, Noah Levine, who started oh. Refuge Recovery. Oh, amazing. Cool. Yeah. Stephen's son, because I was, I'm, I'm 56 soon, and his father was one of my great guides spiritually when I was a little younger than you are. And so wow. it was really a beautiful circle to me to have. Cool. Yeah. Do you know Noah? Have you worked no. at all? Oh, because no. he's the brilliance behind the whole program. Amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Great that. way to go. And and yeah. I see those meetings now more and the buildings here in Portland. So it, it's making its way through the world for those that are yeah. more Buddhist and looking yeah. for a different way. Um, I want to talk about this passage in your book. It really got me. It's page 67. Surprise duets, lonely church stairs as almost solitude. Hope you find your paradise. Believing in divine timing, even when it's uncomfortable. Also, good thing Tegan and Sarah made this album for all of us 12 years ago because I really need it right now. (laughs) And then how to grieve a space, a floor, how to stay in it when you're leaving it. Can you talk about that with us? Tell us about that passage, both of those, please. Sure. I I just want to take a minute to say I'm just really grateful for this experience. I love, I like, I interview people so much and it's really fun to be on the other side um, and have someone read to me things I've written. Um, I, yeah, so those are all different captions from different videos on, on the feed. Like that's a lot of the book is just sort of random smattering of writing that, you know, each of those goes with a different video. Like the Tegan and Sarah one goes with a video of me dancing to Tegan and Sarah. Uh, the surprise duets one was me like dancing on church stairs and then like a man walked out of the church (laughs) and I'm like filming it and he's like, just walks by me. He has no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, yeah, so much of, you know, this personal practice started right around the time that my uh, ex-husband uh, and I were still married and we were get, we were like maybe going to be separated and so and you know we ended up getting divorced in May of 2016 so it really and then I moved away from Michigan in October of 2016 so it really chronicles this uh, like I you know I didn't that was part of the like I had no expectation of the outcome like I started doing it not realizing like I am going to now document in movement a divorce you know I didn't that wasn't like the goal of the project but that is certainly what ended up happening and the the grieving the space and the floor was about this really, I ran a shop and artist residency called Have Company in Grand Rapids and, you know, closed that space and moved. And I, so interesting having it read back to me. I remember the exact video. I was like dating this 
boy. And like I told him I was moving to California and we realized we loved each other. And like in the video, I'm wearing his sweatshirt. It all feels really dramatic looking back. And uh, yeah, I was like, how do I like grieve this space that I know I'm leaving, but I have like two more months to like love this new person here before I move. And the space that I love so much and I'm so sad to leave it, but I know I have to leave. And so, yeah, I don't really know if I would have, I mean, that also circling back to drinking, getting divorced was the hardest thing I've done in sobriety. It was the, it was the most I've ever wanted to drink. It was the most I've ever just been like, I don't want to feel this. This is so like, it was so painful. And, you know, drinking was how I didn't feel my feelings. Instagram is how I don't feel my feelings. You know, shopping is how I don't feel my feelings. So, uh, so moving through my feelings was amazing and how I, how I still process that. And I'm, you know, I'm lucky today. I just, you know, John, my ex-husband, you know, now sometimes he like plays for my dance classes and, and we just talked on the phone a few weeks ago and we have this, you know, sort of light, but, but strong relationship to each other still. And I, I think that can exist because I pay attention to my feelings and move through them instead of, you know, trying to stuff them away. So, yeah. Ah, it's such a beautiful way to talk about this embodied idea. It's I, that word is what launched this whole radio show for me was mm. what is the meaning of embodied? Because often people say it's physical or think it's physical and it's so many more things that I define as being mental and soulful and emotional and physical. But when it is brought through the vessel of the physical body, everything is awakened through the mental and spiritual and emotional vortex of existence. So they go together, but they have to be understood separately. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that pulled me so deeply to your work was that I loved reading that you wrote that the point of this whole personal practice dancing every day was accountability, mm. but I also could feel you were moving through some big grief at the same yeah. juncture that I was. And also mine was a divorce. And I think there is nothing harder other than death. Mm. And it is mm-hmm. a certain type of death. Yes. yes. So it's right up there with the death of a person leaving this incarnation, but mm-hmm. um, it will bring you to your knees and, I can't imagine not drinking during mm-hmm. my divorce, which has been now what led me to stop is I right. finally, I'm over the, the just knee curdling pain. Yeah. Uh, so when you think about, and again, not knowing this when you're in it, not knowing the outcome of these daily dances would be a way to grieve and a way to be accountable. What a powerful way to then describe accountability and grief. Yeah. So how do you talk about the way that the body moves that sort of bigness through the system? Well, it's inter- I love talking about it and looking at it this way because I, I, I don't really, like it's so cool to hear it reflected back from you because I, that was sort of like the mystery outcome was that I would, was that like, moving would heal me because again like I'm a dancer as like not someone I'm not like when people are like maybe you'd like five rhythms or ecstatic dance or like dance therapy I'm like what like that's I don't, no I don't even know what no. that is like I'm a dancer 
you know, like I'm a contemporary modern dancer and improviser. Like I improvise as a compositional tool. It's like someone making a painting of a landscape. It's like, this is a painting of a landscape. This isn't like a meditative painting project. And so I think that's what I like this funny thing that I run up against when people are like, it's so, it seems like it must be so therapeutic to you. And I'm like, well, I guess it is, you know, it's like, um, like that's the thing that maybe continues to surprise me the most is how much better I feel when I dance. And so I guess sometimes I wonder is like, do I feel better because it is an embodied practice or do I feel better? Cause it is just my art practice. Just like if someone were to like, somebody else might sit on their computer and be a graphic designer all day and feel the feeling I have from dancing all day because they're staying committed to their art practice. So I don't, I guess I'm just lucky that my art practice is moving my body. Um, So yeah, it's like one of my mentors, Catherine Ferrier, when she teaches, she's always like, this might feel therapeutic to you, but it is not therapy. And I love that. Um, You know, I really am approaching the work through a, a compositional dance making lens. Like what is the beginning, middle and end of a piece? I'm not necessarily like, I hate the world today, so I'm going to make a dance about it. You know, I don't, I don't really make dances about feelings. Um, but when I, when I move my body, I definitely feel stuff. So, and when you dance, I feel stuff. So you're, you're bringing feeling to the forefront, Mm, just like a certain poem can make you weep. I mean, it's, So the art form is coming through for other as deeply as it must transform through you. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're channeling something and, um, that's very different than, uh, choreographed forward, back, side to side, or the ecstatic, you know, the ecstatic dance movement was begun by Gabriel Roth. I don't know if you've worked in her Mm, world mm -hmm. at all, but she, Mm -hmm. she was something, she was really special. Um, and, a lot of her work came from such an organic place that was based on rhythm and sound and beats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it grew into this other thing. But, um, she was, she was a muse of mine in the eighties in New York city and had a really, uh, unusual way to approach movement through the emotional system and then the rhythms. Um, and I'm not representing it well, I'm just going off of memory, but it became sort of a, a cult following with the ecstatic dance movement and many other versions of it. But her whole approach was interesting and you might find it. So I think her book is called sweat your prayers. Cool. Um, anyway, I want to know where your inspiration is because you, on your website, you speak about guiding people, um, towards their own inspirations, helping them clear their blocks in their life. So where do you feel right this moment, spiritually, creatively, and business-wise inspired? Well, I'm looking out my kitchen window (laughs) right now, and I'm like, I'm so inspired by the place that I live. I'm really, I mean, right now I'm just so inspired by the, you know, the little, the literal geography landscape of um, I live in Point Reyes Station, which is on the Point Reyes National Seashore, like an hour north of San Francisco. And it's mm. uh, it's a pretty, you know, West Marin is a sort of a mystical, 
private secret place in many ways. It's like another thing, like the 12 steps I'm always navigating, like how much do I tell people about this place? You know, I, I both like want everyone to come here and want it to like stay. It's special place. Um, I'm really inspired. Yeah. I'm, I'm inspired by my friends. You know, I think that's, I feel really lucky to have a lot of friends who show up really deeply to their own art practice. I've been working really closely with Nicole Lavelle, who is my neighbor and one of my best friends, and she's a graphic designer, and I'm opening up a public studio shop space here in West Marin, and she's been helping me vision it and design it, and I just love the way that she uh, sees the world and... My friend Stevie is coming to visit this week and they are a dancer and they're amazing. We like met in college like 10 years ago and mm. I'm excited to host them this week and to learn. I, I told them to, they have to teach me some moves this week because I'm always improvising. So it's like, I need someone else to teach me some moves. Um, and yeah, my like a great, um, I have like many different, you know, mentors and people that I look to, but I regularly have sessions with Dory Midnight and she's in Western Massachusetts and she's sort of a spiritual guide to me and we work through a lot of my own blocks so that I can better show up to people that I'm helping with their own blocks because I think sometimes I you know maybe this is something you experience too of like I can go so dark as to like, I'm so messed up. I'm an imposter. How, how can I possibly help other people? And so it's good to like have the other people who pull you out of that so that you can be, you know, fully available to your people. Oh man, just to know where to find guides. If you tune yeah. in, you know that, cause I think guides are needed for everyone from mm. this point until the final breath, because that's the way we keep building potency in our own journey and in our teaching. And, and so, yes, I love those guides that show up and they often do come in a spiritual form for me, but the way you were describing your answer, it sort of felt like the people you mentioned are creative and spiritual and, Mm -hmm. um, have great business input all in the same person. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So tell me this, when you found Point Reyes, how, how did that become your place, your location, your landing point? Yeah, so I came up here with Andrew, who's my one of my best friends, and we went hiking. And on our way to hike, we were living in Oakland together at the time, and on our way to hike, I like closed my eyes and I had never, I was like, this is amazing here. And I closed my eyes and I was like, I want to see like a magical sign from an animal. And in my head, I was like, maybe I'll see a deer. And, uh, I was like, Andrew, Andrew, we like stopped the car. And uh, I I watched a cow give birth (gasps) baby to a baby calf, like literally slit a wet little (gasps) calf slip out of a cow. And I was just like, Oh my God. I was like, I'm not, I don't think I'd ever seen anything give birth in, in the, in real life. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I guess I asked for that. And there that there's that little sign. And, and it was just amazing and and beautiful. And yeah, I slowly started coming up here more to walk. And then I met my friend Asia, who's a craniosacral therapist here and also a dancer. And she 
actually it was the first day I moved to Oakland. Um, I moved to Oakland first and I went to a dance show at SF MoMA and Asia walked up to me and she was like, are you Marley from personal practice? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I'm Asia. I live in this small town an hour north of here. I'd love for you to come teach a dance class. I was like, okay. And then like six months later, Andrew's like, oh, my friend Asia lives in Point Ray Station. I was like, wait, mm. I met her. Like she was literally the first person I met when I moved to California. So wow. there was lots of like pretty big signs. And then um, there was just a lot of like, you know, when I moved to Oakland, I felt sort of like it wasn't my place. I didn't really feel like needed there in the way that like I stayed in Michigan so long because I felt like there was really a place for me there. And when I started being here, it felt like the people here were like, we want you to be here and we want to love you. And, and so, yeah, just made, again, it was like a lot about the, how I felt about the land and being close to the water. It reminds me of Northern Michigan a little bit. And then, yeah, the people just sort of folded me in. Then I met Jane, the librarian. <laughs> She's got a cabin in her yard and I <laughs> moved into the cabin and yeah. And then I started writing a, another book that comes out this fall and I teach, dance classes here and and have an office right now above the bookstore where I see my creative advising clients and then decide to open up a space in Inverness on the way to the beach so it's been ah. slowly unfolding but it's good and your new your new space that's going to be open to the public the name yeah. is center which is beautiful yeah. tell Thanks. us a little bit about it what's going to happen there when when can the public come um, so my lease starts April 1st and I'm, Same. I'm such a, um, I really am a process driven person. Cause I'm like, stop by on the first, you know, I don't, I don't need the shelves to be sanded for anybody to come by. I think it's fun to see the, the process, but it's, um, it's currently the point raised light, our local country newspaper, country weekly. And, um, it's fun cause they're moving just next door. So they'll be my neighbors, which is great. I love our newspaper. And, um, yeah. So like I said before, I had this space in Michigan that was sort of like primarily a store and then later transitioned into being like half store, half artist residency. And so this space will be a little bit more of like Marley's public studio. So there'll be room, I don't know if I'll teach dance classes there, but there'll be room for my own practice. Um, and then there'll be artist talks and a zine library and workshops and co-working days and movie nights and shows. And it'll just be like a nice, the sort of like Inverness proper doesn't really have a community space like that right now, like some of the other towns in West Marin kind of already do. So it felt really fitting and, you know, the landlord is like my best friend's partner's uncle. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. that's kind of the vibe. And so, it, uh, yeah, it happened really naturally. And like he's really supportive of it being a space that, you know, cultural events in the community will have. And there'll be art shows also that like one wall will be a gallery wall. So, yeah, I'm also really meditating on like how can this business not rely on Instagram or social media as much as like other businesses, you know, really cater to this sort of like small local rural community that lives here and you know right back to like making sure there's newspaper ads and flyers and word of mouth and you know spreading spreading the news in other ways sort of mm. part of the project also 
I feel deeply it's going to just be a wonderful success because honestly, I think people have never been more eager and available for community. And and that word of mouth, like that's how I've built my entire community here in Portland with my classes and my coaching and I have workshops and it's just been so beautiful to watch it come through a foundation that's strong and not at all built on social media, but more because someone tells someone, tells someone, tells someone, and then you've got community that is non-competitive and much more... um, aligned and integrated so this is going to be so successful and we'll let others know before we say goodbye as to your website address where they can get an email about the opening and other events artists that you'll be featuring I did want to talk about the book coming out in the fall because all I have to say is the title is just (laughs) like everyone is going to feel something the title is Mm. how to not always be working Mm. (laughs) yeah so Talk about how not to always be working. And I love my work so much that I do work always, but I want to know more about how not to always be working. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to love the book. Then. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it kind of starts that way. I mean, the book. So I made a zine of the same title in May of 2015. And, um, and now it's going to be a book that comes out in October. And it's, Yeah, it was so fun. I mean, the zine is like a few short pages. And so it was a really amazing experience to really unpack it and see, you know, what all was there and what I wanted to talk about. And yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. I I love work. I love working. It's my favorite thing. I love my work. I feel really lucky that um, I get to be my own boss and have a job that I invented in many ways. And so, you know, the book doesn't say it's not how to never work. It's it's, I think it's just about figuring out, like, how do I take breaks? How do, because a lot of times people are like, well, you have to be on Instagram a lot. It's your job. And I'm like, no, I don't have to be on Instagram a lot. Like, it's actually not really efficient for me to be on Instagram as much as I am sometimes, because it blocks me from doing the real work. So a lot of the book in some ways maybe should be titled like how to pay attention to the real work and stop wasting time maybe. But, um, I also think I, it's like in the introduction, I joke that, you know, the book could really be one page. How to not always be working is just um, turn your phone off, go hang out with your friends outside and don't tell anyone you did it. <laughs> and, um, you know, because that's what's been hard for me is because I'm a, oh God, I don't want to say public figure. I almost just said public figure. I don't want to say I'm a public, I'm a really public person. And so the way you know, people are attracted to my work because they feel a kinship with me and they feel like they know me because I share a lot of my personal world on the internet and, and in the way that I write and, and what I share. And so it, that, that is part of my work. You know, it's like just being a person became part of my work and that's really why I wrote it. Um, and now it's funny because, you know, I wrote the book last year. I wrote the zine almost three years ago. I feel like now I need to write a book that's like, how to work better or how to work harder or something like (laughs) I found kind of a dip in that. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. My friend, Sarah Gottesdiener, who writes, um, the many moons workbook talks about, 
like leveling up in your career. And I really found that like getting a a book deal by a major publisher and, you know, having my income surpass, you know, what it had ever in like years combined in like one year of like my own work and getting a book deal. I just felt like, like the imposter voice just came in so loud and I just, kind of froze and was like, I don't want to make anything. I don't want to get better. I don't want to be better. I don't want to like, I'm not a scrappy punk anymore. If I have a book that somebody else puts out, like it's a betrayal to the struggle that I'm not going to struggle anymore. And so I like want to keep struggling. Um, so that's sort of my like biggest thing I'm working through right now. And it'll be interesting to see. And the book isn't even out. I'm like, I keep forgetting that this book is going to come out. And like a lot of people are going to see it. I don't even have to tell anybody. It's like, I'm so used to self-publishing and like self-promoting that I'm like, whoa, this book is going to exist and people are going to read it whether I want them to or not. So I guess I got to learn to be detached from that outcome too. Tell us how you found the big publisher because it's exciting to have that not your own self-publishing and you've got someone publishing it for you. What was your journey through that world? It is a beautiful story of just doing the work really. Um, I made the zine and I taught the, uh, I teach it as a workshop also. And I taught it at case for making, which is a beautiful, cute art supply store in the outer sunset in San Francisco. And there was one copy left and a woman named Kate Woodrow bought the last copy. And then she Mm -hmm. tweeted about it. And I really don't look at Twitter very much. So it was like a few months later and her, um, her, little bio on Twitter said uh, um, senior editor at Chronicle Books and I was like oh whoa I was like that's cool like maybe I should email this person and like tell them I want to make it into a book so I emailed Kate and she was like oh my god it's so funny I actually just left my job there to become a literary agent and be my own boss and like your zine helped me so much in that like transition. And I was like, whoa. And then I found out like books that she had edited at Chronicle that were like hugely inspirational to me when I started a business. And she was like, I'd love to take you on as a client. So then after this sort of like harrowing year and a half of like Kate went on maternity leave, then I got divorced. Then I stopped believing in myself. (laughs) It was just like, it just, the proposal just like didn't get done. And then I had this breakthrough. Um, and Andrew, who I mentioned before, sort of was like, he pushed me to like, um, I was like, I hate my life and I'm sad. and I don't believe in myself anymore. And I'm sitting on this book proposal. And he was like, what? You're sitting on a book proposal? And he was like, how much more do you have to do? I was like, probably like 10 minutes. And he was like, okay, we're going to finish that. And so I finished the proposal. And yeah, so I had an agent and Kate is amazing. And I, I encourage lots of people to work with agents. They're amazing you know, they, they make a percentage of your final book deal or record deal or, you know, whatever kind of project you're working with. And it just felt amazing to have someone else advocating for me and cheering for me. And so I had four offers and I felt really lucky that like the publisher and editor and most freedom came with, you know, the biggest monetary exchange and it was really beautiful. And so, um, a small imprint of Harper Collins is publishing the book and they're called William Morrow. And, and so they'll put it out in October. And it was amazing. It was like, they let me, they just let me do, I got to write about being a witch. I got to write about dismantling the patriarchy and white privilege and like just things that I think a lot of like gift book publishers would be like, well, 
maybe we don't put that in. Like I really <laughs> got to write a cool book and I'm excited. That's God, how, how did you, how did you take down the white patriarchy? We need to know. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, part of it is like that part of what I've been unpacking a little bit and part of what I, both Sarah Godestiner and Dory Midnight, who I've mentioned, I feel like are just amazing examples of people who, you know, run businesses and give a lot of money and time back to, you know, underrepresented voices, whether that's, you know, Black Lives Matters or Planned Parenthood or just, you know, different organizations that really need, you know, funding and voices. And so that's, that's part of it. It's like how to not always be working is like, how can you be not tired so that you can be radically available to those who really need it? Mm, boy, is that a good one? Well, and I think that when you are doing work that's driven by passion and purpose, that there is a synonymous, almost an improv quality to life Mm. and work becoming Mm -hmm. one. So what I was curious about is when you were saying, you know, turn off the phone, turn off the computer, go hang out with friends, don't tell anyone. What do you notice in your own creative process that gets fueled by doing that? What, what is the juice from that that is the reason to do that? Yeah, you know, I think my, I also have to recommend, I just got the book, How to Break Up with Your Phone by, yeah. I think her name is Catherine Price. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. Everyone should read it. I did sort of have the like, because I talk a lot about phone usage in my book too. I was like, oh, she really, she really nailed it. She did a great job. Um, but she you know, talks a lot of, and you used this word earlier in our conversation, but she talks a lot about like getting into flow. And, you know, when I'm constantly picking up my phone, I'm blocking any like daydreaming or thoughts or just like new ideas coming into my head. And so I think, um, you know, that's where I, and something you also said was like, you know, personal practice is, is absolutely a channeled project. Like I think sometimes when people are like, you're so amazing. I I can hear that. And I'm like, thank you. But I'm really like, I'm just showing up as a vessel. This was definitely someone else's idea. Like I, I, I am pretty smart. I think I'm pretty smart, but like, this was absolutely like, and that's sort of like, um, you know, the artist way, Julia Cameron mm-hmm. style talk of like, I'm just showing up, you know, as the channel for the higher power spirit to come through me as an artist. But I think that that's, you know, when I'm on my phone or working too much, um, or focused on like work as I have to get rich and have this outcome, like anything I've ever tried to work at in terms of like, I hope this is my big break, you know, never worked. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the thing that got me the book deal was just making a zine on my typewriter and selling it for $5. You know, that's what, brought me to the greater good. And so, yeah, I think that's, and like, I think our friends, our friends are going to die. You know, it's like our, our people are going to die at some point. And I don't want to really have that happen and be like, oh, I wish I would have paid greater attention to them and been there in a deeper way for them, but I couldn't because I was like so obsessed with my work and that obsession with my work really let, you know, a lot of things led to my, my marriage ending, but 
you know, I wrote how to not always be working sort of because that obsession with work was, you know, detaching me from my partner who just so badly wanted for me to look up from my phone. Mm -hmm. And so I'm lucky that now when I'm in partnerships or friendships, you know, that, that hurt bad enough to, to be, um, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty good now at not really having the phone out when I'm with people, but yeah, I've really watched it, you know, hurt relationships. So you learned that lesson with John. Yeah. That's yeah, good. I that lesson with John. Yeah. My, my big thing that I get so heartbroken about is everyone walking their dogs with their phones in their faces, like these dogs that are being walked by people holding their phones are so yeah. lonely. Yeah. Like they do, I just want to say, look at your dog. Your I dog, know. your dog is looking at you going like, put the phone down and I they don't, know. no one sees the dog and it's I their know. one walk in the daytime. It's like, kills me. I want to start a, maybe I'll start an Instagram account about that just to get yeah. people yeah. to like <laughs> stop doing phone time when you're walking yeah. your dog. Yeah. Um, Marley, I have loved talking to you. It feels like it's been five seconds. I know, <laughs> I, just, I know. I'm like, has it been an hour? <laughs> it's just been wonderful. And I want to spell your name and make sure everybody knows how to find you. And I'm yes. so glad you're on the planet when I'm on the planet. When Thank do you, you turn 30? June 2nd. Oh, that's the day my mother died. Wow. Whoa. Uh, and that's and and circle. my very my best best friend that came to me after her death is born on June second, Brian. So that's wow. a very that's a big day for me. Wow. Uh, oh wow, June second. Marley Grace can be found at MarleyGrace.space, which is M-A-R-L-E-E-G-R-A-C-E dot space, S-P-A-C-E. And uh, closing words from you to our listeners, what would those be? Oh, you know, this maybe is like a little heavy, but my friend Kia recently said we were sort of in a group of women just talking about depression and anxiety and sort of helping a friend who is really struggling with, you know, wanting to keep wanting to stay alive, basically. And Kia said, you don't have to feel like magic to stay here. Uh And I just love that. I've been thinking about that so much lately. Like, it's not going to feel like magic every day. Um, You don't have to feel like magic to stay. You can you can stay a little longer and it'll it'll come back it always does that's um, so beautiful marley grace thank you thank you so much thanks for having me have a beautiful day you too thank you for listening to feel good naked radio with laura redmond please join us again for new shows every month on the voice america variety channel until our next show Be you and feel great in your own skin.